0: Before we get going into your Hockey IQ podcast episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Rapid Shot. Rapid Shot is the smart shooting lane. Uh, It's like a batting cage for hockey players. Very cool. Tracks your shot in three ways accuracy, shot speed, and reaction time. Uh, Easy to use. Uh, Actually, I used it when I played and was growing up. Very easy. Simply scan your phone in, select your settings, and start shooting. Uh, You can see your stats on the app and online. You can check them out at rapidshot.com. A great small business. I actually grew up with one of the owner's sons and have played with all the family members by now, uh, just in local pickups here in Ohio. Very cool local business. Awesome product. I love it. I know quite a few NHLers have them in their homes. Uh, A lot of D1 programs have it at their rinks. So you have to check this out. Rapidshot.com. Check it out. Rapidshot. Thank you so much for sponsoring our podcast. On the Hockey IQ podcast today, we bring on Mika Blake McCurdy, uh legend of Hockey Viz. So, welcome,
1: sir. Pleased to have you. Pleased to have me. I don't know where I am today. Sorry. Lovely to be here.
0: <laughs> no worries. It's uh, early morning on New Year's that we're recording. So, I think we all have excuses here. So, <laughs> not a problem. But um, just to kind of get going here, maybe give a little bit of background. You, you started down a professorship track in math and took uh, maybe a right or left hand turn into working in hockey and visualization and all of this public sphere.
1: Yeah. So I was, I was quite sure when I was, I've had a number of career changes in my own mind over the years. You know, when I was a kid, I thought I was going to be an engineer, which is a terrible choice for me. And then I thought I was going to be a physicist. And then I thought maybe a mathematician. And I did a lot of education in that direction. And I was in Australia doing my PhD in math and discovered I was very very homesick all of a sudden and it came out in a funny way where I was suddenly craving hockey in a way that I never had been when I was in Canada where you don't need to you know you don't need to pay attention it's just there anyway but in Australia it was very far away and I and I wanted to do some more some, a little more hands-on than the math I was doing and so I started making my own little simulations for hockey and then after that Got into a slightly different career sort of mode where I was working in some startups doing some quantum computing stuff and those startups succeeded reasonably well but got moved away from what was really interesting to me and so I gravitated back towards hockey again and then with sort of put the two ideas together of starting my own company and, and working in hockey all the time and so that's when I started Hockey Bits.
0: All right, so... You took the, the quantum leap into this industry <laughs> that is hockey um, that really wasn't developed at the time, if, if I remember correctly. So I'm curious how you made that work. I'm assuming there was some consulting work uh, growing in the public sphere. Uh, it's, it's not an easy industry to break into if you're not affiliated or have like a hockey background with an NHL team or have a name behind you. So it's really impressive what you've done. I'm curious
1: to hear more about that. Well, thank you. And, and there was a fair bit of sort of behind the scenes stuff of working for teams, working for the league itself. Um, you know, not, that came later and then working for, you know, whoever, whoever was interested in doing freelance work. So over the, you know, that, that was obviously quieter because in particular teams, um, but, you know, one of the sort of vices of teamwork is that they're all extremely um, tight to the chest about what they what they even do and what they know, and, and I found that off-putting actually. But on the one hand, as you suggest, that was really vital for getting Hockey because as a public-facing enterprise off the ground, because we have we have a lot of subscribers now, enough to well enough to pay my salary, which is all I ever wanted from the website. And but that took many years to grow. We started about five or six years ago, and so the the time it took to grow was bankrolled by well a fair bit of personal debt, but also a, a good chunk of you know, working here and there for whoever wanted to pay for my services behind the scenes. And a lot of that was teams.
0: So I'm curious as to why you never ended up working for the teams. Is, is there a reason why you want to stay in the public sphere? Obviously, secrecy uh, was one of the reasons, but was there something more?
1: The secrecy was the main reason where the, were the public satisfaction that I get from being able to share things comes from my training as a teacher. And I still, I I still also teach a little bit on the side. I have a, a casual position at a local university in Halifax. And, and I find that, that an immensely satisfying part of my life where I, you know, when I figure something out about hockey, the same as if I figured something out about math, I like to be able to explain it to other people. And I feel like that's the real victory. And, and so the secrecy of teams, you know, really, cut across that where if you figure something new out you use it for your own advantage over the other teams and I don't you know I don't mind one team getting advantage over another team but as a on a personal level it just never interested me and so that in some sense I don't have that like really traditional sporting mentality where you know I want to be the very best and show everybody else that they're not as good as I am you know that that like really drives athletes and that's good for them for their career but it's never been my never been the thing that animates me and so moving towards public work is, has sort of always been a natural fit for me.
0: Excellent. You, you said that you really enjoy sharing things that you're discovering or working through in the public sphere. So I'm curious, maybe what are some things that have stuck out in your mind over the years that you've been really excited to discover and really excited to share?
1: So one of the things that, that one of the like specific aspects of hockey that I didn't understand that that I spent many years working on is I was trying to figure out if I could deduce whether or not score effects were driven primarily by leading teams or by trailing teams. So score effects, um, I'm sure almost all of your listeners already know are how you notice when you're watching a hockey game, once one team is winning, the other team starts to play a lot better seemingly and seems to carry the play a lot. You know, when you're defending a one or a two goal lead, especially late in the third, you see that the team that's trailing just to have the puck all the time. And, and you can see it in the shots they take. They, they score more often. They shoot the puck more often. They don't win as often. You know, the starting head is always good, but the, but that effect, where trailing teams dominate, I wanted to figure out who is actually causing that. Is that the trailing team that's playing different? Is it the winning team that's playing different? Is it a coaching strategy? Is it uh, is it some artifact of fatigue that different players are playing now more than they were previously? And there were, you know, it seemed very thorny, like this little knot I wanted to untangle. And so I started with work of Eric Tolsky's in the, in 2014, I guess, trying to figure out what he was doing there, and and that has been a single thing it's like a knot that I've been picking at for years and years and years and research that I finished about a year and a half ago well two years ago now I guess that I I felt fairly convincingly showed that it was the behavior the coaching behavior specifically of the leading team that causes that that fits with oh you know and when I figured that out a lot of people said well you know that's what we've always known but there's sort of a you know that's part of what you what you get in the bargain when you do public work is that every time you figure something out to your own satisfaction, no matter how carefully and rigorously you did it compared to what you might have done. There's always going to be people who say, ah yeah, you know that we all knew that. But, you know, I we all suspected it or some of us did, but I felt much more satisfied when I could tell myself that I had figured it out properly, not just, you know, guessed the right answer.
0: Well that's that's hilarious because uh you almost didn't get to share that publicly in person uh so i'm oh yeah we got on that that story as well how how
1: you came to even tell that story on stage that well i i the research itself actually the like final piece of it was reasonably easy although it took many years like the you know good research projects you you take a run at it and then you you know you get something it's not entirely satisfying and then a year later you think oh i'm gonna try that project again and i'm gonna do it right and by the time i finally like sat down to the run at it that I've decided is is sort of final The in the, would have been December of 2019. Then we had no reason to think that in the immediate months afterwards, there would be terrible pandemic. And so in fact, it's weird to tell the story because the, the, as we now know, there was already COVID cases circulating the, and, and we had no idea. Like there were people who went to Sloan, which was that same weekend and who got sick there. But the, but then that, that turned out to be a travel journey from hell, and, and just to get to Columbus, um, and Alison and Lucan, bless her heart, who ran that conference, rearranged my talk slot, I don't know how many times, where I would text her and say, I'm sorry, I'm in you know, Pittsburgh for no good reason, you'll have to move my talk back again, and she just reorganized the whole conference on the fly, which, which was incredibly, incredibly kind, and then, of course, I had to try to explain these things when I was massively full of cortisol, and and, you know, on zero sleep and as you do when you're trying to travel in the modern world. And that was before we even had COVID.
0: And you, you finished it off. It wasn't a flight into Columbus.
1: It was, I think it was a drive from, from Pittsburgh into Columbus? Yes. And I also botched the rental car hire. And so um, the car that I reserved was not there, which, which was my own fault. And so I had to take whatever I could get and I could have a Ford F-150 uh, or an enormous Chrysler sedan. And, you know, it was like a car your grandfather would drive. And so that's what I had to take instead of the truck. And so I drove at some scandalous speed all the way from Pittsburgh to Columbus. No one, I don't think has ever wanted to get to Columbus, Ohio quite so badly as I did.
0: Well, well, it was a, a new resident to Columbus here in the past six months. I, I appreciate it. And I, I was there to see uh, you in your full glory. And it was awesome to, <laughs> to see that research come out. So can't thank you enough for all the troubles you went through to finally get there uh, in person. And, what, what timing? It wasn't more than a month later that everything shut down. Pretty much. Absolutely. So continuing on here. I mean, you you've messed with a lot of statistics, and when I've been talking with other people through this podcasting process, um, they keep pointing back to the influence you've had on them. You know what is what has it been like mentoring others? and how many people are you mentoring at one time, or how how do people work with you? curious how that that's all worked out for you. Cause it seems like you've had a, a tremendous, if not the biggest impact in the public sphere on hockey analytics.
1: Well, I, I don't know if that's true, but, but if it is, I'm, you know, to the extent that it is true, I'm gratified about it. I, I, like I, I took a public position on purpose. I, I, I want to have, you know, I don't just want to have a job where I get paid. I would, I want explicitly to have the kind of career where where I can lead a whole field, however, however, diffusely, but because when you're working through the public and you're not working through a hierarchical organization, like a team or a, or a company, the, you know, you don't have that sort of formalized relationships. Like I don't have any direct reports. My influence is not because I'm anybody's boss and, you know, but an idea which terrifies me incidentally, but the, but I, you know, you do notice over the years because you do it for a long time that, you know if i say well i think you should look at hockey this way and people say that's ridiculous and then 3 weeks later or 3 months later or 3 years later you look and and most of the people you respect are talking about hockey in that way and and you can see you can watch your ideas gradually take hold so formal mentorship relationships i've had um much less but but the very informal way of just you know carefully and patiently arguing out stuff you figured out and and also just being helpful to individual people who ask um, at, at specific moments. So I get any number of DMs probably, you know, it's off season now because there's a little break for Christmas, which I guess we've, we've finished now, but, but it's been a little bit less. All the postponement games, you know, anytime the league itself sort of dies down for a little bit, then I get less less attention. But, the, but I have a, a fairly steady stream of 10 or 20 DMs a week, of just people saying, you know, I like your work. What can I do that would be interesting? Or I want to do this. What, how should I do it? Or, you know, this is how I'm thinking about like, sometimes I get very technical questions. Like I'm looking at score effects in this particular angle in this particular league. And, you know, I want your idea about whether or not it's good and I'll just, you know, give my quick opinions to them or, or help them figure out a viz or help them figure out some code or, and so that's much more, you know, it's much less formal than an actual mentorship relationship, but, but because I, Take an opinion that I try to help everybody out who asks in good faith. That means that 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 willingness to be friendly and willingness to work for other people um, spreads a lot of a lot of goodwill and a lot of influence over the years, and and that's one of the things that you can do when you're your own boss and you set your own schedule. You know, I can tell myself that. You know, today I'm going to work on this new viz, or today I'm going to work on this new model, or today I'm going to work on this website improvement. But other days, I tell myself, you know, I'm just going to work on answering emails and trying to be helpful to other people, and and that can be can be weird because you never quite know, you know, if the people aren't your friends, you don't know how smart they are, you don't know how knowledgeable they are, you don't know what their experience and background is. But but if you're willing to be helpful and and you know, step over, miscues, and say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize you didn't know that, or I didn't realize you did know that. You you can make a lot of you can help people a lot if you're willing.
0: That's awesome. And I'm curious um, to go back to a point you made about going over your work basically twice here. You had a great piece that I, I really liked. And uh, it was around ice position gained and loss really doesn't matter. So mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind diving into that, maybe the first round versus the second round and, and what changed. Um, Or like what reinforced your thinking on that? I think that's a fascinating topic because I feel like a lot of people view the game as, you know, one line's job is to go from the defensive zone to the offensive zone and then change.
1: Sure. So part of part of the like trouble, if you like, just getting your getting purchase on a problem, like just getting up on the wall, if you're trying to climb is is getting a hold of what conventional wisdom sort of has you suspect a kernel of real truth in it and which ones don't. And, and so there's so much, like there's so many people, there's so many commentators, there's so much like ideas just floating around. You hear from commentators constantly, you hear from newspapers, you hear from magazines, you hear from people on Twitter, just this sort of froth of ideas. And so the first thing that I like to latch onto, I, I do a lot of work that's reactive in the sense that I, that I you know hear some phrase repeated often enough and I think, boy, I really want to check that. So for instance, this idea about the, you know we, we were told for years that that terrible fourth line grinders were really valuable to their teams because they hit the hit their opponents a lot when they had the puck and so you know in the days of Colton or in 2013 2014 all through Toronto like that was the sort of thing that people heard a lot and and so i was a little bit suspicious at first that similar kinds of arguments would oh you know you need a guy like like Jean-Gabriel Pajot, who early on in his Ottawa days was particularly good at moving the puck from the defensive zone to the offensive zone, but not particularly good at putting the puck in the net, you know, either he either personally him or any of his other teammates when he was on the ice. And I I approached this idea that you know that you could make yourself valuable by gaining territory somewhat skeptically because of how it how that idea came to me and the sorts of people who were promulgating it. And and the approach I took at first, I think, was a bit clumsy, where I didn't try to isolate anything specific about what people were doing. This is always a, a perpetual problem, actually, because, you know, when you're working statistically, it's always going to be easier to get a handle on diffuse things like what happens when this person's on the ice. And, and if you're looking especially at shots and goals, then you're looking at the end of, of longish processes because you you play for quite a long time you know, just to be able to get a shot, let alone to be able to get a goal. So, so I was trying to, once I had a little bit more confidence, a few years later, I took a different approach where I was looking at something a bit more direct. I was looking at, instead of looking at, at results like shots and goals, I was looking at more micro results like, can you get the to cross the blue line? And first your own blue line and then the next blue line. And so I was looking at the problem a lot more directly of, of where is the puck actually moving and then trying to figure out people's impact on that. And there it turned out to be a slightly more minor thing than than well, certainly than some people had said. But but then one of the things, you know, one of my sort of enduring watchwords, if you like, is that you can't just say something exists or something doesn't exist. Whether you think it exists or not, the only real way to move any conversation forward about effect is you have to measure it. So if someone says, you know, face offs don't matter, that's the only way you can make sense of that is you can say, well, I actually know precisely how much face offs matter. It's this much. See how that number is small compared to some other number, you know, that, that we care about more, you know, because obviously no, nothing that happens on the earth is going to have no impact whatsoever. You can see it in a pure, like in a pure physics-y causal sort of way. And so, and if an effect is large, you can't just say, oh, this is clearly a big deal. You have to, you know, then the next question is obviously, well, how much of a big deal? You've got to work it out somehow. And you can estimate stuff. You know, there's a lot of leeway, I think, that sensible people have for, for you know, well, we think this effect is somewhere in here. You know, we have a range, we have a confidence, we have some sort of some sort of uncertainty, but you can't just say, oh, you know, this matters and this doesn't, as if they were just binary propositions. And so so when I took a second go at it with a more fine-grained approach, I got something a little bit more. Interesting, and and in particular repudiated my old finding where I said, "Well, this," and not just the old finding, but the old approach, even where where once you look at something the right way, then all of a sudden the measurements become a lot easier. So there's a lot of things like that which are which are about perspective at their root. Really, you know, did you take the right approach when you worked this out? And if you did, you can often find an answer that's very sensible. You can find something that feels enlightening. And if you take the wrong approach, then you'll just get zero, zero, zero all the time.
0: Absolutely. I, I like how you're saying like you're refuting what your old work was as you, you gain more wisdom as we'll, we'll Broadly say it. Um, I'm, I'm curious for, for those that maybe didn't read this work, Leo, what was the effect on ice position gained or loss?
1: So same, the, same with the face-offs. Oh, so I didn't, I've never done anything specifically about face-offs. I just mentioned that um, because it was one of those things that, that, a lot of other people did a lot of good work about you know how much our face-offs actually worth. Like, is this puck battle worth more than that other puck puck battle? And just because it's at the start of a shift, and you know, and, and some like that's that's never been my work specifically. But the first, the first um, time I tried to to quantify ice position, I discovered that the effects were were so small that they were almost vanishing. And when I did it again, I found that that some people were consistently moving the puck across their own blue line about 15%, and, and also over the opposing blue line, different players, but 15% more often than, than an average player. And so, you know, every time you'd you'd have some sort of rate, you know, you try to get the puck out, Uh, every time you can obviously and and you succeed some rate of times and then when certain players were on the ice you could boost that by up to 15 percent and so that that 15 percent felt a lot more substantial than the oh this doesn't really matter before and so especially if you're looking at at something like putting two or three of those players together and now all of a sudden you're getting a boost where you know you have your third line guys who are who are skilled at that specific thing is one of those roles that's that survive, but we like third lines to be good in transition, even if we don't expect them to score a great deal, you know, that all of a sudden you're looking at, at exiting the zone 40 to 50% more often than you would previously. And, you know, that's the kind of thing which where you really can make an impact in terms of, of how many goals you concede and how many goals you score, even if you personally don't concede those goals and don't score those goals. Awesome, awesome stuff.
0: Um, talking about being able to score goals, uh, I, I know, especially up in Toronto, they have this idea of failing in the playoffs stuck in their minds. I'm curious, um, and even on the, I think it was All or Nothing, I think that's the series on Amazon, when I looked about mm-hmm. the Leafs, and Sheldon Keith was talking about, like, yeah, our offense is okay, but we're not scoring in the ways that you score in the playoffs. You know, is there something to qualities in the regular season that help you predict playoff success and, you know, what might be
1: those key attributes? So the, it's easy to get caught up in, you know, oh, we, you know, we're, we're a a post season team or we're a, a regular season team only. And a great deal of, of those sorts of sentiments, I think are, are sort of back formed where, you know if you win in the playoffs then that means you must have been a good playoff team and there's no no ascribing anything to luck or fortune and and this idea that you know that you in particular i don't think that goals are, are scored particularly differently between the regular season and the and the playoffs and so you know but the, i try not to criticize people too much just for how they approach the game but the the one thing that that matters most of all for for playoffs it's because it's more luck driven because just because it's so short the you the sort of natural swings can overwhelm your core talent pretty quickly so if you have you know if if you rely on shooting talent and your shooters go cold then you just lose a series right there you know you can not you can't survive a drought that long and even more obviously if your goalie has a bad series then you lose you know there's sort of no there's very very little leeway there you know you don't need goalies to be excellent in the playoffs but you do need them to not be at their worst because there's no quantity of skater talent that can overcome several bad games from a goalie and you just that that just kiboshes your entire series right there but so i found just looking at it statistically, the the patterns that hold up best of all, and this is going to be maddening for Leafs fans, um, are the ones specifically that the Leafs are best at, namely offensive volume. You know, being able to gain the zone, being able to generate shot after shot after shot, and and this is actually related to something about something about um, shot rates that I think goes underappreciated. Where you know, if you look at at shot rates obviously you have to use rates to be able to compare things properly you know you're looking at five on five per se, and this team has more five on five time than the other and so you know you need to divide by the amount of time to make it a fair comparison to make it apples to apples but but there's something slightly more sneaky when you look at rates is that as soon as you look at say you know we're going to try to score we're going to try to shoot 55 times in a game you're not just looking at at shot rates you're looking at the time in between shots which is the same thing just looked at sort of from the other perspective and now the shot rate is measuring a lot of what you're doing when you're not shooting the puck. Because as soon as you don't have the puck, if you're going to keep a shot rate up, you have to get it back really fast. And you can't be wasting shots that aren't worth anything because shots that, that don't threaten are just turnovers. And if you're turning the puck over constantly, you can't generate a high rate of shots because you don't have the puck often enough. And so there's something, the, something re- uniquely off-the-puck offense that's coming out in teams like the Maple Leafs who have extremely high offense generation. And and so we've seen with Toronto, for instance, even just this year, like they've been, on the one hand, like taken as a whole, they've been staggering. They've won a huge number of games. They've blown teams off the rink again and again. But on the other hand, they had a long patch early on this year where their shooters ran cold and and lost several games in a row and caused a great deal of hand-wringing. You know, that kind of cold streak... Already some fans have forgotten it because it was followed by a whole pile of wins. Um, But that kind of cold streak can happen in the playoffs also. And when it does, you know, all of a sudden it's news that people are going to chew over for weeks instead of being, you know, a thing that people, pardon me, yell about on Twitter for a few days and then forget when the team starts to win again, because there's no later on because you're out of the playoffs. So those, those, Streaks are a natural part of hockey just because it's a natural part of how human talent works. But when they happen to line up with the playoffs, especially when it happens two or three years in a row, you know, all of a sudden it becomes this narrative, and now the narrative needs explanation. And one of the things that I think you have to do if you're gonna try to do disciplined work is push back against that narrative and say, well, we don't, you know, we're not going to fall into this trap of thinking that that there must be some essential explanation for everything that happens. Sometimes it's just luck, good or bad. Well, it's difficult too, because as an analyst, you have to take that opinion often. And as a coach and as a player, even if you realize that's true, it may not be plausible professionally for you to just say that, you know, maybe not even to yourself. Like maybe you have to take a different approach and, you know, and those kinds of like, for my job, I have to not look at it this way. Stuff comes up all the time. And I think for athletes, it comes up constantly.
0: Yeah. And I know as like a coach or any kind of leader, like you are like the end all be all. So no matter what, you're like, okay, what could I have done differently? Even though maybe you should have done the exact same thing over and over again, it would normally lead to success. Just this time, the results didn't follow, even though you had a great process. It's, it's
1: maddening. Yeah. And it is maddening. And one of the things that you have to do to make peace with, you know, with life generally is that you can do everything right and still lose. And 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 so one of the things about being a good leader is that you have to have that conviction and also a way to explain that to other people of saying, you know, I know that this is the right way. And even though it didn't work out for us, because I know that that, you know, we're in a chaotic environment where the other team is also doing whatever they're doing and all this, you know, that that courage of, of saying, you know, we lost, but I know this is our best lineup. And so we're going to roll it out again you know that that takes actual leadership and it's it's less common than the people who say that it's common think.
0: <laughs> well, talking about rolling out the exact same lineup, uh, rarely does that happen or you know maybe you sometimes get some line juggling. So I'm, I'm curious, I think you were the first person I definitely remember. Maybe you're the first person total that really gave some true insight into individual players with your with you without you charts. Uh, where did that come from and why do you think it's so powerful?
1: So originally, actually, it came from, it came from seeing other people do something a bit too much where there was, you know, wowie stuff with you, without you stuff started to become, you know, fairly common in 2014, 2015, I guess, probably a fair bit earlier, but, but I was sort of late to the scene, if you like. So I, I noticed it a little bit later and, and there was, it was all very numerical. You know, people would look up tables, they, the, you know, extra skater, and then and websites behind the net before that, and and people were doing, people were trying to isolate individual talent, because that's, you know, that's the bedrock to running a team, is knowing who is carrying who, and who is helping who, the, and that, so that, you know, is that him, or is that his linemates, or is that her, or is that her defense, You know, all these, like, Player evaluation questions, because it's a team sport. You know, you you can't help but get into that stuff, and you, and all of a sudden you see this naughty problem where the you know the results are attributable to some group of people, and you have to tangle that into isolating it. And the first step of that is is looking at something simple, like well, what happens when they're on the ice and when they're not? What happens when they're in the lineup and when they're not? You, know, you, you take those ideas and slowly, slowly make them more elaborate and more sophisticated. And I felt that. I felt that the way I was seeing it done was clumsy. And I, you know, you start to suspect that maybe there are problems here that the that the people doing the analyzes don't see. And and so it's one thing to say, you know, oh, I think this is suspect. Like you can't compare the Canucks with Daniel Sedin to the Canucks without Daniel Sedin and do the same thing for Henrik, you know, because they're only split up when things are going really wrong. Like there's, you're, you're you're not looking at the data that you think you're looking at because because the isolate, like the split that you're doing is not a neutral split. You know, the coaches, like the, there was an even better example of this than the Sadines with them. Um, in Ottawa years ago, um, Mark Mathot and Eric Carlson used to play um, together almost all the time. And people would make a lot of hay about what it looked like when Mathot played without Carlson, when Carlson played without Mathot. And, and those minutes weren't just any minutes. They were all special in some way because they were the, the top pairing for the team for years and years. And when they were split up, it was for a reason. Um, and there were a variety of reasons, but it was never, you know, just sort of let's play hockey. It was always, oh, cause we're losing, or, oh, we're winning, or, oh, we're in an unusual situation on the road. And all of that information was lost. And so my very first thought to try to address some of those problems was I thought, I've got to look at the same data myself in a way that I could understand. And since I'm so poor, understanding numbers, I decided to make pictures instead. And, and that sort of started a rabbit hole of, well, what do the pictures have to look like? What is it I want to picture? How can I see this visually? And, and, and so a lot of, a lot of work comes from just, well, here's my idea. And I'll get to that in however many months it takes to actually write it all down. But I'm gonna do it steadily and carefully so that what I get, can be useful for a lot of people, not just for me. So you have to take a little bit more generality than just what's going on with I don't know Matt Barzell and this other person. And, and so you need like infrastructure and that that informs a lot of how I build stuff. And so those you know with or without you charts I still like I feel like I've moved on to more sophisticated things for player evaluation, but that's still where I start. still like you know what is happening on the ice in these two cases and then you can get to okay why? You know, what are the situations, the circumstances, the contexts that drive those things? And that, so that's just that little step in that process. And building
0: off that, you mentioned that this is where you start. So where, if you are short on time and you can only go to one place or two places, you know, where are you going to evaluate players if they're good or they're bad or
1: they're attributable to team success or not? So I, I have a, um, a model for isolating player impact on five on five shot rates. And that's my, uh, and so the details of that model are, are detailed. It's a big complicated beast because hockey is a big complicated thing. But the, the you know, that's, that's just one thing um, of five on five shot rates. You know, there's lots more to the game than that. There's power plays, there's penalty kills, there's can you shoot the puck, there's can you pass the puck in a way that's threatening. You know, there's all sorts of other things to look at, but, But five on five shot rates as the endpoint, captures so many of the aspects of the game that feed into that. You know, if if you can't transition the puck across your own blue line, then you're not going to be able to generate shots and you're going to bleed them against. If you can't pass properly, if you can't skate properly, if you can't, you know, you don't have any of these like basic skill pieces in your arsenal. If you don't have them, then you're not going to be able to have a strong impact. And so my first port of call is always is always that, is 515 shot rate impact. And then after that, I think, you know, are you like, I don't make that my sort of my first judgment or my only judgment rather, but that's certainly where I start. Because if you can't generate offense and can't suppress offense, then your impact is necessarily going to be limited. There's only so much you can do to make up for, for being beaten in shots consistently. And, you know, there are plenty of players who manage to make themselves useful anyway, but as a rule, most players don't consistently out out benefit that kind of failing and vice versa that it's very difficult with weaknesses here to you know you can't have an entire team full of guys who just drive the puck up the ice and never finish but those players are so easy to make them valuable by pairing them with other players who are you know generally cap expensive and not easy to get lots of and so that's always my first thing to look at
0: Yeah, it's like uh, here in Columbus, forward, check, and lining. You know, one drives the puck up the ice, the other one puts in the back of the net. That's awesome. But also, I I think it's hilarious. And you're mentioning that the only visualization I'm getting in my head is the old-fashioned defender. Everyone's like, "Oh, this player is great at getting the puck out of the zone, defends well, blocks shots." um, You know, but he's just throwing pucks off the glass and never has the puck, and just getting a ton of shots uh, against. So that's how he gets all the blocks. Maybe not the most valuable.
1: that, I mean, that archetype um, is mercifully, and this is part of. I don't know if it's my influence or whose influence it is, but for whatever reason, that that influence, like that kind of player, is definitely on the way out. know they still exist. You still see that kind of play, but you know, if you've been watching the game for ten years, the comparison between now and ten years ago is is like night and day. Where you know, it used to be that every team had a bunch of guys like that, or or three, and you know, now it's much, much less. It's just like fighting. You can see as it's as it's steadily. You know, there's never going to satisfy anybody. You know, who hate it are never going to be happy with. You know, because fights still break out. But but if you actually look at trends, you can see how those things are changing. And and defensive zone play, you know, is definitely one of that. And but that, like you were saying, it goes into you know how do you evaluate players. And so if you're if you're evaluating how well a particular player. Defends a certain rush or defends a certain play, that's one thing. And if you're asking how well, how often the team permits that play to happen, that's different. And so, you know, you you, there's always that one layer back that you can go to if you want of saying, well, you know, instead of doing this, well, could we do it less? And would that actually be better? And there's there's this is a little bit counterintuitive. There are lots of teams who would benefit from giving up um, better quality chances if they could limit the number of those chances to be dramatically less. And sometimes that trade-off is available to you. And sometimes it's not, but you know, you can't, you can't take a pure quality look at everything. You need to balance the quality and quantity.
0: There was a Mike Sullivan quote once he's like, what's the best way to break defensive structure? And all the reporters looked around and he's like, shot on net. (laughs) Yeah. So sometimes it's not just about getting the quality. That was my qualm with the, the Leafs early in this season was, Everything was about getting the quality shot and the best look, but it made it super easy on the goalie because they never had to think, oh, maybe this puck is going to come now from this weird angle, and I need to respect that, which opens up other opportunities. So I I, that's massive, and I'm an eye test guy because I don't know math as well as you do. Um, I apply it as a financial advisor, not so much into uh, hockey here. Even though I feel like I try to play the probabilities, especially on odd man rushes, but it's just
1: something to behold. <laughs> that that point about the Leafs—about you know, like they have a fearsome offense this year and have done for a number of years—but this year they they do have a, a habit of of generating shots from the same spot on the ice a great deal. Uh, the spot itself is like in the sort of medium slot. It's an extremely good scoring position. Place to shoot from you know the the kind of thing where if you can go to that well very often you know you're going to have success regardless but it does you know take the edge off a little bit when you become predictable and in fact this is one of the places where you know reading other sports is very helpful i i'm not a soccer fan particularly you know i watch the fancy stuff but i don't have a team but i follow a little bit of soccer analytics and one of the things that was very useful there is because they've been developing xg models you know uh faster and better than we've done in hockey and just sooner makes a big difference. And one of the things that they noticed is that is that if you're consistently only taking certain shots, then the XG values you get from looking at a much larger sample can be a little bit misleading because goalies in particular, if they know that they don't ever have to deal with long range shots, they'll just play in a much safer way, safer for them. And, and you can't permit that new environment to take hold. You know, if you're, if your old calculations of this is where I ought to shoot from because I can see it's the best, you know, that assumes a particular distribution of shots. And so if you're going to move away from that, then you might be ruining not the conclusions so much as the assumptions of the work that you did. And now it's no longer going to have the validity that you want it to have. And so there's there's you know, it has this sort of chemical property where if you if you stress a system, it moves away from you. And so you can't you can't assume. That the assumptions that you started with are going to hold all the time. Once you start changing your behavior, that's going to change the system itself, which is um, part of the fun of team sports.
0: It, it is, and, and I'll maybe hopefully put this simpler um, for for our
1: listeners here. Uh, think cat and mouse. Sure, that's the that's a, a little bit simpler way to put it than thinking in terms of some chemical reaction. But the the number one thing if people have a there's another phrasing of this where people will say that once a once a trait of your system becomes the thing that you measure then once you take that as your target, then it no longer becomes a good thing to use as a measurement. And, and the you know, how much, again, you have to be quantitative about that. You know, how much these things move away from you, you got to figure out, but it's more philosophical. You have to keep your mind open to the fact that once you target something, you know, it has a shelf life. I feel like set plays are the greatest example of this. You know, they're not very common in the NHL, but, but the Canucks years ago used to run them all the time. And set plays work until you get figured out. And, and once you're figured out, then you got to do something else. And it's not that it's not that it's luck exactly, but it is short time. You, know, you only get as long as you get. And, and so even if you develop a tremendous set play that you really like, you have to realize that it works as long as it works. And once you see them start to figure you out, you got to be on to the next thing.
0: And I think that's one of the reasons the NHL is such the hardest league to play in because there's so much video so many eyes on it like i think about all of the elite players like they have to evolve their games at least three to four times in their careers just to continue yeah. to be at that elite level um but going back a little bit i'm curious you, t- you talked about predictability and changing of play styles
1: uh what's your opinion on point shots well i i think that that does match up almost exactly with what we we're talking about about getting figured out or not. You can you can get a lot of value out of point shots if you're getting a lot of space. And the, you know, if you and that goes sort of in two ways. Like if you're generating a lot of point shots, you get a lot of offensive zone possession, you can make your defenders skate a lot by moving the puck a lot faster than them. So that low to high movement can can benefit you for fatigue. But the shots themselves go in so rarely. That that there has to be another layer or another two or three layers to your whole offensive scheme, where on the one hand, obviously, you need to have some sort of strategy for what you're going to do with the result of those shots, since it's almost never going to be a goal. So you, you know, you have to have some sort of net front breakdown, you have to have some sort of cycle breakdown that comes after that. The the it's great for breaking down your opponent's defensive structure, but also you can break down your own offensive structure because you're causing chaos and confusion, which is part of the idea. And more basically, the the shot, the danger of those shots can be reduced very sharply by players who just give you a lot of space at the point. And so once once defenses start to sag off of you, then you're no longer getting those fatigue benefits because they're not chasing you around the ice, and they're because they're collapsing towards the net a little bit. You're getting a lot less of the value of any kind of confusion because you can't get the puck through as much because and when you do, you're getting it into an area which has more and more of the defenders players and fewer and fewer of yours just by space. And so you have to have a system that's flexible enough that says, okay, if you're going to give me another 10 feet, I'm going to walk in and use that possibly to make a pass instead of to make a shot. You know, you have to be flexible enough so that when they adjust to you, you can adjust to that. And a lot of offensive schemes, I mean, this is this is one of those areas where, you know, it's true that the league is extremely sophisticated, but it still lacks a certain sort of cutthroatness where a team that has a good offensive scheme, you can see players get locked into it a little bit. And then, you know, five man, maybe it's fine for a little while, but then five or ten games later, all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself mired in one of these slumps. And part of those slumps, those can be exacerbated by being figured out. And and you can, you know, we were talking earlier about the Maple Leafs constantly getting shots from a particular location, and if that location is very good, then then you can ride out some of those slumps. And but if you're doing something a little bit, I don't know, more generic for lack of a better word, you know, the sort of thing that you could do with any kind of players, not just with particular players, then you're going to get figured out that much faster. And so, so that but that flexibility itself is something you know it's not just something you can say well okay we're going to coach better now we're going to be more flexible you know you need the kinds of players who can do that because if anytime you're going to ask for more careful decision making more opportunism from your players that's going to have knock-on effect anytime you're asking players to think more in the game instead of thinking ahead of time you know that's going to put stress because you have to make these decisions at top speed in game and so you can't just say well you know make better reads like, you, you could just as easily say, skate faster or hit harder to your players. You know, that's great if you can do it, but you can't just get it by asking for it. So, the you know, it, it's easy, and you must know this as a coach, it's easy to, to say various versions of, you know, well, why don't you just be better at these skills and we would win more. And that's obviously true, but it's not really helpful as a coach.
0: Absolutely. I was curious, are, are you coaching any team? Can we live barn in or, or get any <laughs> game film to see how your team play is? Cause I'm, I'm curious about, I mean, like we, we talk about these low hanging fruits, you know, avoiding point shots uh, more often than not, uh, you know, driving play, making sure we're possessing the puck. If we can get entries through the middle, you know, these are all these low hanging tactical fruits you can really, Gain a lot of advantage of, especially at the youth level, where maybe these things aren't as well understood by the wider audience. I'm curious for you, what are some low hanging tactical fruit that, if you were a coach, or maybe you are a coach, that you would definitely attack? And definitely so first utilize? of all,
1: first of all, I'm not a coach. I I don't actually, I, you know, I, I like have little ideas. I don't really have any serious coherent system. You know, I won't ever be a coach. Oh, fact, come on. I you could be like, like
0: Ryan Stimson.
1: <laughs> I See, Ryan Stimson, I was just about to say, one of the people that I admire a lot is Ryan because one of the things that he's done is that he's married a good data work with some good video work with some good X's and O's. And, and he, to do that, like he went on a journey where he spoke to a lot of coaches he respected that, to learn what they were doing to synthesize what he was doing with what they were doing, you know, that process. And I haven't done that. And I would love to do that even for purely mathematical analytics. I would love to, to have a better theory going in and to do that. I, I need to become, you know, I don't need to actually coach, but I need to know what a lot of some coaches know. And so that's sort of in, like a next step for me and the pandemic kind of ruined making new connections like that. But, um, but that's one of the things I want to eventually do is, is befriend Professionally, some coaches that I can really learn a lot from, but, but actually answering,
0: tribute as as well, uh, I'd happily, uh,
1: you, you tell me to try something out, give it a shot. <laughs> well, keep that in mind. But in terms of, in terms of like low hanging tactical things, I think one of the easiest things you can do to, to benefit yourself a little bit more from a tactical point of view is, is taking an opinion internally about risk where internally i mean even to your own self like before you decide what it is you're going to say to your players before you know you say as a gm what kinds of players you're going to go out and and try to get you know like ahead of time before you make any decisions taking an opinion about risk in particular about defensive risk where where if you can stop thinking in binaries of how can we make this happen how can we make this not happen and instead think explicitly in terms of rates how can we make this happen less how much less how much more rather than just yes or no then you can you can start to you know you, so i mean moving away from things like how many scoring chances did we give up you know we're aiming for two per game or less you know start looking at how many scoring chances are you giving up per shift of this person you know some defender that's interesting to you or how many are you giving up per minute you know, look at finer grained stuff. And once you do that, you can have an idea about risk where you say, are my defenders taking enough risks in their own zone? Or are they taking too many risks in their own zone? Not are they making the right plays, but are they taking the right number of risks where you, and now all of a sudden you, you bake in So one of the advantages of this kind of thinking, the reason I mention it, is that instead of saying, instead of talking about the correct play or the wrong play, you can look at how every play, no matter how conservative and no matter how chancy, has a chance of success and has a chance of failure. And even if you're looking, even in those purely binary terms, as long as you're evaluating them, this is the chance of success and this is the thing that I get when I succeed. This is the chance of failure and this is what happens to me when I screw up. You, know, you need some kind of way to evaluate both of those things together and once you convince yourself that these two ideas are always married together that every play no matter how conservative has an upside that you should be measuring and every play no matter how dangerous has a downside that you should be measuring that too then putting those two ideas together makes it possible for you to evaluate should i be playing more cautiously or should i be playing more uh and and then once you get that sort of rooted then you can get an even more sophisticated ideas like you know should I be taking more risks like this or more risks like that you know then you can embroider that and, and really do actual work but that mentality can can open up your brain for a lot of conversations that make it all a lot more sensible and a lot more figure outable, for lack of a better word can actually like make some progress on working out if your ideas are actually better instead of just well you know we tried this and it didn't work and by didn't work we mean we didn't win three games in a row you know, which is a little bit you want to get something a little more systematic so that you have a theory that you can apply going forward you know for a career for at least a season
0: i uh, think as sam hinkey said the process the process the process massive <laughs> well so.
1: and, and you want like I mean, among other things, one of the, like, you don't just need this for pure on ice reasons, for pure on court reasons. You also, you know, you need to explain what you're doing, not just to your fans, not just to your team, but to yourself. You know, you need to have a coherent way to live so that, you know, not to be too zen about it.
0: Uh, I, I like that. Uh, everyone has their own narratives. Um, and I, I found that even though uh, our life experiences make up like 0.0000001% of the world, um, it seems to make up at least 80% of
1: our view of the world. Well, I mean, you, what else can you do? You, it's lunchtime. You got to eat like you don't. There's no, there's no viewpoint from, from nowhere. You, you have to take what you've got because you don't have any other choice. Absolutely. Well, we could go
0: down this rabbit hole for, for days. Um, and I'd love to have you back on to continue exploring this, but I, I think we should wrap it up for, for today. And I'd love for you to tell the people where they can find your work, uh, how they can support your work. Cause it's, it's so, so valuable. And uh, it's, it, Hey, like I said, it's valuable, not only f- for people watching the NHL, but for even players trying to get better parents, trying to understand or coaches trying to understand the game better. So I, Money for value. I'm always
1: big win there. So tell the people where we can find you and how we can support you. For sure. Thank you, and and of course the uh, thanks for having me. The so the easiest way to find me is on Twitter, where I am uh, at all times. Um, sadly, the kind of sadly the uh, it's at ineffective math. All one word. Um, it's a joke about how I tried to be a math professor and could not find a full time job there. Um, There's also a website, um, which is called hockeyviz.com. That's hockeyviz.com, And the, the, as is probably, uh, I don't think we've talked about it specifically, but that's the website itself and subscriptions to it are how I make my living. Um, It's about sort of half and half stuff, which is free and um, stuff, which is not. And so one of the nice things about it is that you can just poke around and see, oh, you know, that looks fun and, and just look at the stuff that's free and then decide later if you want to buy stuff. And, uh, and and the shtick, if you like, is that it's all pictures. That it's it's you know the, the mathematical models behind it are all have any amount of numbers, but I don't perceive numbers easily or well, and instead I'm, I'm prefer pictures, and so that's the the whole approach. So I uh, I obviously support people subscribing to the website because it's how I live. Um, but the there are plenty of people who who get a lot of good out of it without subscribing. And so I encourage people to check it out, whether they feel like subscribing or not.
0: I'll, I'll back you up on that. I believe um, all of the presentations you have, the talks you've done are on there for free. Uh, you've got some good articles, um, even, even just like season previews and how you're thinking about these types of things are, are super powerful. And if you want to go into the tools, we can go into expected goals and spray charts and matchup simulators and all of that fun stuff. Uh, there's, there's a lot of good, I would just say that, uh, people should get out and definitely check out your website at the bare minimum, uh, cause you'll learn
1: a lot there even to start. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, that's important to me that research should always be like I was saying earlier that I really want to be able to figure stuff out and explain it to people. And so the research has never been paywalled. Anything that I figure out, you know, even, even things that I didn't do very well, you know, that's always available for free. And so what I charge for is more like detailed reference material. And so it's very good for, for casuals. However, you know, however nerdy, if you're getting into something, you know, the the nice thing is that you get like little gateways where you can say, ah, I wonder if I, I wonder if this is true. And then all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, two months down the road and you have your own website.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Nika, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Like I said, we definitely have to do this again. I feel like, truly have only scratched 10% of where we could go with this.
1: Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I did. So before we let you go though, we'd like to remind you to please like our podcast, subscribe to it, give us a follow uh, and share this with all the hockey people in your life. We really appreciate uh, growing this community, this podcast. Um, Remember, we also have a newsletter, the Hockey IQ Newsletter as well. Really excited to continue to grow this. So please help us grow this further by liking, subscribing, following, and sharing uh, with everyone. So appreciate you all. Take care. That concludes this week's episode. Thanks for joining us here at Hockey IQ. If you haven't already, take a quick moment to hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and drop a review. If you want to be a great teammate, even recommend us to a friend. You can follow us at Hockey's Arsenal on Twitter and Instagram. Check out the website, hockeysarsenal.com, where you can subscribe to the weekly newsletter. You won't regret it. Catch you buttes here next week for a brand new episode.